Shortle, and you're listening to the May 5th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story, but artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Kansas Museum of History has quite a collection of firearms, and one of them is pretty well known by gun collectors and enthusiasts. Interestingly, it is not associated with the Wild West, but rather is from America's colonial era. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we uncover how an 18th century rifle from Pennsylvania ended up in Kansas. And then, it's Cinco de Mayo, so for today's episode of Six Degrees of William Allen White, we asked you to connect Mr. White to the celebration that is not Mexican Independence Day. Do you know what Cinco de Mayo commemorates? And more importantly, how to connect it to our favorite Kansan? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Colonial Rifle. Today we're talking about an 18th century rifle that's in our collections, and I'll remind our listeners that they, that they can see images of the rifle on our website, kshs.org. Something awful. like that. Yeah. <laughs> now, while I'm fascinated to find out what a colonial era gun is doing in our collections, before we get to that, can you describe the rifle for us? Uh, yes. It's. I think the one thing that most people would notice right offhand is that it's got two barrels on a swivel. Ooh, fancy. Uh, so that since most shotguns at those times were one shot, this gave them an op- opportunity to swivel the barrel and get a second shot off if possible. It's just repeating rifles were not available at that yeah. time. <laughs> uh, it's what's called an over and under gun, really, a double rifle. And... It's also rather nicely done, too, as far as decorative work. Uh, So that's really a a good part of it. Okay, and who made this rifle, and when was it made? It's made in the late 1700s by a man named William Antes. Uh, He's from eastern Pennsylvania. He was born there in the early 1700s. Was involved in the Revolution, was well-known as a gunmaker at that time, and slowly makes his way inland, such as inland was in those days. <laughs> he gets a little further into the interior of Pennsylvania in the upper reaches of the Susquehanna River, that's north-central Pennsylvania and mm-hmm. into New York State, and eventually winds up in Canandaigua, New York, which is in western New York, around the Finger Lakes region. Uh, he's, he's very much admired for his gunsmithing skills. He, he obviously knew quite well, how to do this. So what makes a good gunsmith? What makes a good gunsmith? Well, I think knowing how to, write, to, to build the right barrel and know how to get the right <laughs> balance. <laughs> that I'm not too sure, actually. Let's just put it that way. But <laughs> Um, so this rifle... Making appe- sure it works is probably a good start. Yeah. <laughs> it shoots bullets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, this rifle appears to be almost as much of a work of art as as well as a functioning firearm. Uh, what elements set it apart from your run-of-the-mill 1770s rifle? Well, the walnut stock has some nice carving into it. And there's also a lot of engraving on this, if you look at the various metal parts to it. That, 
Uh, he's got his name engraved in a couple of places on it. Uh, there's an image of what has been described as an Indian that shows up on the end of the barrel, or the one end of the barrel, mm-hmm. barrels, I should say. Uh, there's also some engraving work on the plate at the breach, which uh, is very elaborate. Uh, he's, he's a bit of an artist for when you get right down to it. So, okay, the big question, how did a rifle with origins in the colonial America end up in our collections at the Kansas History Museum? Well, the question's more, we know, we know how it got here, we to the museum. We don't know how it got to Kansas is what the bigger question is. <laughs> we know it got to the museum in 1917. Uh, a fellow by the name of Edwin Fox gave it to us. Uh, although he didn't really give us a lot of information about it. It sort of got a cryptic note in our accession books that says that this was found out at Fort Hayes. Okay, we have a little (laughs) bit of a problem here in time. (laughs) Fort Hayes ceased as an army post in 1889. Mm -hmm. He gives it to us in 1917. Why was this gun at Fort Hayes? Yeah. Uh, and where was it between yeah, 1889 exactly. and 1917? Or does that mean something else? Are they referring to Hayes City instead of Fort Hayes or maybe some other reference to the university, perhaps, uh-huh. uh, or what, what became the university? Uh, it's just not sure. Now, how it got to Kansas is the bigger problem. <laughs> Travel long distances. Yes, yeah, it could have been that it was something that belonged to an officer, who had it in the officer's quarters at Fort Hayes, and then it got dispersed with his belongings, perhaps, in Hayes. That's mm-hmm. one thing. There's also one historian that said that aunties made guns for Indian chiefs up in New York State. And as you know, a lot of Indians got displaced from that part of the country right. and brought out here, and it could have been that it was brought out or found its way just being traded. We just don't know. So our question remains unanswered. The question remains unanswered. We, we kind of hope, though, that maybe through the article that's on the website and even this interview, maybe that just on the wild chance that this, they, they know something, there yeah. are descendants of Edwin Fox out there. Okay. And we tracked him down completely. We know he wound up in California eventually. After Kansas? After, after Kansas? Actually, he got, went, the, went the long way around. We know he gave the gun... Because on the very same day he gave us the gun, he was some insurance men gave him a dinner. He was an insurance man. Oh, okay. And he'd gotten a promotion to the head office in New York City. So he's apparently disposing of this gun as he's getting ready to leave town. Huh. Topeka. From New York, though, we know he winds up in California. We know there are children that were out in California. And they're probably your great or grandchildren, at least. And it's possible some of them are still out there, maybe even listening to this Ooh, very interview. That'd be exciting. Please call us, if you, particularly <laughs> if you know anything about why your ancestor had this gun. <laughs> yeah, and you can contact us on kshs.org. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so um, is this gun pretty well known among gun, gun collectors? And oh, enthusiasts? yeah. Yeah. In fact, we often have gun collectors that are asking, no, this really doesn't have anything to do with Kansas. Why don't you trade it or sell it or get it available to us. Well, 
as long as it's got that thing about Fort Hayes dangling over it, we're yeah. not going to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly since Fort Hayes is one of our historic sites. So, uh, But, yeah, the, the questions keep coming. There are people that like to study the gun because it is just the work is just so intricate. Mm-hmm. Do people come in and actually want to see it? They have come in, actually, uh, from Colorado, from other parts of the country. It's been written about several times uh, since the 1950s. We have articles in our files. Do we know how many of these guns exist now? Uh, I think we have a guy. I'm not sure exactly how many anti's guns are still out there, whether they're, they're identical or not, because he made out different types of guns, including pistols, but uh, there are a few anti's guns. They are cherished by collectors because they are such well-made guns. And yeah. Okay. Works of art. One last question. This gun is from Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and you are from Pennsylvania. Uh, if you ever move back home, are we going to have to check the trunk of your car? He's got a problem with that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I, I'm shocked we even asked that question. I, I, I'm repulsed. I mean, I, 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 I could conceal it a lot better than just putting it in the trunk of my car. <laughs> it wouldn't even fit in the trunk of your car. It's pretty long. Uh, yeah, it would because I could get some odd things in there. Okay. And I would come to the other. Can I get that body out of there, too? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh wait a minute. <laughs> well, then. All right. Thanks, Blair, for stopping by. You're quite welcome. <laughs> Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Museum Director Bob Kickison. Hello. Hey guys, it's Cinco de Mayo. Yay! You guys should have said hola. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hola! (laughs) So you guys have any big plans? Um, Not really, I guess. uh, Just having uh, my old friend Jose Cuervo over for for a little get-together this evening. I was thinking maybe, you know, just siesta would be... Oh, oh, so, oh. You know, yeah. well, that would that would go nicely because I'm having pizza for lunch. And then I can take a little <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> there you go. Well, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day. So, Bob, could you tell us what this day is about? Sure. Well, uh, as you mentioned, many people, uh, particularly in this country, mistakenly believe that Cinco de Mayo is Mexican Independence Day, but. It's not. Uh, Mexico celebrates its independence from Spanish rule on the 16th of September. And they declared their independence um, like in 1810, but then it you know, took many years before they actually threw off Spanish rule. But Cinco de Mayo, to the point, uh, is the anniversary of the victory by outnumbered Mexican forces over French soldiers at the Battle of Puebla on, appropriately enough, May 5th, 1862. So... Why were the French in Mexico, you might well ask. Well, in 1861, Mexican President Benito Juarez stopped making interest payments on debts that Mexico had with other countries. And this didn't sit well with Napoleon III, who ordered his army to invade Mexico. Not only did he want his money, but Napoleon had visions of creating an empire in Mexico. But on May 5, 1862, this Mexican force of about 4,000 soldiers, who was outnumbered two to one, there were 8,000 French, highly trained French, 
soldiers. Well, the Mexicans defeated this better equipped, better trained uh, French infantry and cavalry at the Battle of Puebla, and that's about 100 miles east of Mexico City. Well, the battle is significant not only because the Mexicans bested an army that hadn't been defeated in almost 50 years, but it also marks the last time that any country in the Americas was invaded by an army from another continent. You know, we invade each other over on this hemisphere all the time, but, yeah, but uh, last time an army from, from another continent invaded. And what I find particularly interesting about Cinco de Mayo is it's not that big of a holiday outside of Puebla in Mexico. So, you know, it, it's really more of a regional holiday in Mexico, and certain parts of the country in Mexico don't really make a big deal out of it. Uh, it's the United States, however, that's made a big deal out of Cinco de Mayo, and it's become a day to celebrate the culture and heritage of Mexican-Americans in Mexico, much like we do St. Patrick's Day for the Irish, Columbus Day for uh, the Italians. Um, you know, Americans like to commemorate our diverse heritage. And so, the day we can drink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, it's really become almost more of an American holiday in Mexico. And of course, you know, as Nikayla just mentioned, in the, in the best of American traditions, Cinco de Mayo has also become a huge marketing tool <laughs> for the food and beverage industries. Uh, again, much like St. Patrick's Day, um, we'll use any excuse to make something into a party, I guess, and have an excuse to drink. So, We're fun-loving uh, people. Yeah, but you know, I, I like to think you can do both, you know, so go out and, you know, have a great Mexican meal today and hoist a few adult beverages if, if that's your want. And if you're um, over 21. Yes, over Yes, if you're of age and of that disposition, go right ahead. But also remember, it's the day that celebrates a great Mexican military victory. So that's Cinco de Mayo. Great. Thanks, Bob. And Nikayla, you have a solution? Of course. Um, as Bob has told us now, the Battle of Puebla is the event commemorated every year, Cinco de Mayo. And during the Battle of Puebla, Benito Juarez was the president. Um, and his forces defeated the French, as Bob has already told yeah. us. <laughs> this is like a regurgitation <laughs> answer. Okay. We so, like to be thorough. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, but did you know that Benito Mussolini was named for the Mexican president, Benito Juarez? No. Uh, yeah. And as we know, during a tour of the Soviet Union and Europe in the 1930s, William Allen White met Benito Mussolini. Wow, how about that? Yeah. Connected through his name. Yeah, so. yeah. Hmm, okay. I wonder how Mrs. Mussolini knew of Benito Juarez. Of course, Juarez was pretty well-known revolutionary. So. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. uh, his mother and father were very into politics no. from what I read on it. So, Great. Yeah. Well, thanks. And Bob, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Well, for this one, we don't have any elaborate setup or commemorative holiday. I actually couldn't come up with anything, basically, <laughs> for May 19th. So... Um, for our next Six Degrees of William Allen White, we want you to connect Mr. White to the English writer Douglas Adams, best known as the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Cool. Okay, so if you think you can connect William Allen White with the writer who gave us Marvin the Paranoid Android, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcast with an S. Oh, and there'll be a bonus point if you can work the number 42 into your solution. Colonial Rifle. To see photos of the rifle, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. Do you have an opinion? Do you like to take surveys? Well, we'd love to know what you think of our podcast. So take a few minutes and head on over to the Cool Things Podcast page on our website. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on Podcast Survey. 
and let us know what you think. Go ahead. We can take it. Come back in two weeks when Collections Specialist Donna Ray Pearson joins us to take a look at a program from a baseball game in the 1950s. What's so unique about this particular program? Two words, Negro Leagues. Come back in two weeks to hear the story. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. When I knew you were the one that could make me shine, I knew you had to be mine, oh my.